Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Barbican Screen Talks. Hello and welcome to this, the latest in our series of Barbican Screen Talks your chance to hear classic interviews with some of the most fascinating players in world cinema, recorded live at the Barbican Cinemas. We've been building up an impressive archive of Screen Talks Q&A since the early 90s and have already shared conversations with the likes of Terry Gilliam, Ken Loach and Horace Ove. In this podcast, we hear from one of the freshest and most distinctive voices in British cinema today. Carol Morley received her first BAFTA nomination in 2002 for the autobiographical film The Alcohol Years. This compelling documentary saw Morley, a native of Manchester, revisiting the period she lost to drinking and partying as a teenager in the early 80s. In 2011, Morley earned further acclaim for the moving Dreams of a Life, a docudrama examining the life of Joyce Vincent, whose body lay undiscovered for three years after she died alone in a North London bedsit. But in the interview you're about to hear, Morley talks to film curator and critic Bryony Hansen about her 2014 feature, The Falling. The Falling is a bold, unsettling tale of mass hysteria in a fictional 1960s girls' school. The film stars Maisie Williams, best known as Fearless Arya in Game of Thrones, and newcomer Florence Pugh. They play Lydia and Abby, whose intense friendship is thrown into turmoil when Lydia inexplicably begins to suffer fainting spells, setting off an epidemic throughout her school. The falling is peppered with memorable characters, from Lydia's brother Kenneth, who is obsessed with ley lines and magic, to her self-absorbed mother, played by Morley's muse, Maxine Peake. It's also an extraordinary look at female friendship and sexuality that has earned comparisons to the likes of Picnic at Hanging Rock and Don't Look Now. In the interview you're about to hear, the witty and engaging Morley explains what drew her to the bizarre phenomenon of mass hysteria. She discusses why she's drawn towards such dark material despite her cheery personality. And she reveals how, when it came to the soundtrack, stalking everything but the girls Tracy Thorne paid off in the end. The falling is full of twists and turns, many of which are revealed here. So if you're yet to see the film, be warned, more than a few spoilers lie ahead. I'm Eleni Jones, and this is Barbican Screen Talks, with director Carol Morley. Hello, everyone. 
everybody. Thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you so much, Carol. I, I can't quite believe you're doing this. You've, it feels like you're cruising to the finish now. The film opens tomorrow, and you've done pretty much every single media outlet there is. Um, been highly in demand. So you've got, you've got to fight for independent film to and you're be fighting. visible. That's brilliant. So listen, um, a posh girls' school full of sort of mass hysteria, wearing a dark blue uniform, is absolutely the stuff of my childhood. Um, I'm wondering if it's the stuff of yours, and if it's not, where did all this come from? Well, I went to uh, a big com mixed comprehensive school. It's actually a grammar school, and at the time you would have had, you know, people that had passed their 11 plus, so people from different backgrounds, you smart thing. <laughs> but I was always, I did have fantasies about going to a girls' school. I don't know, they just seemed, my sister had Bunty magazine that had the four Marys in it, if anyone remembers that. And there was always in a boarding school some victim in a cage that got locked out in the snow, <laughs> the poor person, I don't know. They were always like quite romantic, and, and um, so I did fantasise, but I didn't go to one, so I did a lot of research into it. <laughs> Um, what they were like at the time, and there were teachers that smoked and all that kind of stuff. But the idea of a mass hysteria, mass psychogenic illness in real life, they've been going on since medieval times, but they often happen in closed institutions, mm -hmm. uh, closed settings, and usually amongst young female adolescents. So there's a lot of outbreaks that happen in schools that go unreported, although they're not going to go unreported for long because I'm started getting lots of messages about people's own uh, mass hysterias at their school. So I think we're going to, you know, break open a whole new topic for <laughs> breakfast television. So tell us, so, so, you, so you came across the idea. Yeah. Where, how did you go about the research? So I was on the phone to my friend Bev and she started laughing and couldn't, you know, we started laughing and couldn't stop. And she mentioned this village in medieval times where the villagers couldn't stop laughing. And I just loved the idea of that. So I Googled it, came across a village not in medieval times, but in the 1960s in Tanzania, where there was a village that couldn't stop laughing and it spread. <laughs> and then I came across this term mass psychogenic illness and a, an article written in the early 80s by... Um, He's now a sir, Simon Wesley. He's apparently the top doctor in Britain, but I didn't know that. I just went to meet him. And, um, <laughs> and I spoke to him about this mass psychogenic illness, and behind him I saw these two massive box files that said, mass hysteria. Um, <laughs> and and I, I asked if I could take them home, but he didn't trust me. So I was allowed in to study them at the Maudsley, it was, or King's College. So he'd got everything, mm -hmm. you know, like a small article from somewhere in Turkey or every medical article ever written about a British outbreak. So I, I did a lot of research that way. And then I also looked at a lot of schools as well. And the phenomenon is, is yeah. contemporary. You could have made this as a contemporary film. Yeah, a classic case of mass psychogenic illness now would uh, probably revolve around toxins in the food or something right. to do with terrorism, someone smelling a smell. Mm -hmm. um, a recent one was, what's the, the injection you have for, for cervical oh. cancer? What do, H yeah, yeah. That, there was a massive one somewhere abroad when, you know, about 400 people in the village, even girls that didn't have it. Yeah. Uh, but people were saying it was something to do with something going wrong with that. Mm -hmm. That was the most recent one I read about. So, they, 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 yeah, they absolutely happen. But if they're handled properly and acknowledged, but not overinflated, they will tend to go away quite quickly. But there was a, one of the famous ones in medical journals was in a North London Comprehensive. It's, the medical article is entitled Blackouts in a North London Comprehensive School and it was handled so badly it lasted two years. <laughs> And you have to be of the same age. Yeah. And obviously in The Falling, there's you know, Abigail Malter, everyone admires. So in, in a classic case, you would admire someone. So it could be like cheerleaders, the top cheerleader faints, and mm -hmm. people start to feel symptoms too. But they do feel they're real.
You obviously know everything yeah, about this I know, subject now. Why did you make a drama, not a documentary? What I wanted to do really was to, I mean, it was, this was like the, the bigger elements of it, but in some ways I wanted to look at adolescent teenage girls mm. and I, I didn't just want to look at them, I wanted to get inside what that feeling is. So I think fiction and drama is a beautiful way of doing it. I think if I made a documentary, it might have got quite episodic, looking at episodes, mm. it might have been quite difficult to do that. I think I loved the idea that it was like a collective group of young girls, almost like resisting the world and you could make it something quite beautiful and and speak to a lot of people through that mm -hmm. whereas with the documentary it might get it, well it might be like I'd, I'm banging on about my sister and you're just like oh god so uh, <laughs> tell us about the girls start with Maisie tell us yeah. about the casting of Maisie where did you, were you a Game of Thrones fan what made you pick her uh, I've never seen Game of Thrones it's all dragons yeah off. never no. seen it and um, but Shaheen Beg, the casting agent was like you've got to see this girl Maisie Williams because the character is written is, is very complicated she's not entirely likeable Maisie in the film is 16 I really wanted a 16 year old you know to, to play Lydia and um, so I couldn't see Maisie for a while because she was filming that programme mm -hmm. Game of Thrones or and uh, <laughs> um, and she told me I've completely forgot I remember them but I don't remember what I said because I saw her the other day and she said she came in and I said I've never seen you in Game of Thrones uh, and then I went but I've watched an interview with you on the internet and I liked you or something weird and then she said I got her to I asked her to tell a sad story but she told a happy story and I said that's great that's brilliant and she said I thought you were completely mental <laughs> that was her. Um, but as soon as she came in it just felt right that she could handle this very mm. complex character and is in herself very, you know, able to render a charismatic character that pulls you in. She, I think she is the, uh, such a fine uh, young actor, amazing to work with. Uh, I was in awe of her, but I didn't tell her that. In fact, one of the things I remember on set is she drew me aside one day and she went, Carol, can I just say we're having real difficulty with the costume people. They're being really horrible to us. And I went, oh, I'll have a word. But I told the costume people to be, everyone on set, to be really strict with the girls like they were out of school. Uh, so Maisie was like, they, they're getting us to pick up our clothes off the floor <laughs> you know and later on I told her you know I, I got everyone to do that too because I was asking how they sat in school as well and they tend you can see in school you know slump a bit yeah. and you wouldn't be able to do that then so we taught them posture and all that kind of stuff anyway so Maisie was the leader of the gang because all the other girls in the film were newcomers mm -hmm. pretty much I mean Florence Pugh had never done anything before and how'd you find her she was uh, the casting agent put out wide call, uh, wide call near the school where we're going to film in Oxfordshire because Shaheen said do it near where you're going to film because it's cheaper because they can stay at home <laughs> I mean, yeah. so um, Florence nearly didn't answer the casting call and did it last minute and she sent us uh, you know like a 30 second tape or something and I have to say when she came to the audition she had a lot of makeup on and well not a lot she said it wasn't a lot but I got her to take her makeup on. and she came in the room and did her audition she said I got her to talk about a pebble tell a story about a pebble I think I wanted to see if they could tell a story, you know, because that is what all filmmaking is, really, so if you can connect to the audience. And then um, when she left the room, I remember everyone going, oh, my God, you know, that was like a, a young Kate Winslet coming in the room. And But I think also uh, Florence has been writing songs herself and singing songs since she was eight. So you can find her on YouTube as Flossie Rose singing Elvis Presley. Her mum used to post the videos. 
So there's a miniature Florence playing, you know, hound dog. That's genius. Yeah. Did you have to, with the, with the others, particularly with the kind of newcomer yeah. group of them, did you have to ever sort of rein them in? You know, did they know how to behave on set and did you know how to direct them? <coughs> well, I did it in a very simple way, which is that Maisie had more experience than I did of being on set. <laughs> because, you know, like, so I got her to, well, it was slightly creepy of me I suppose but I said to Maisie would you talk to the girls about what it is to be on set and I listened at the door a bit <laughs> just to, and I heard Maisie go and the second assistant camera does this and they're usually very good looking <laughs> but so they had her which was really uh, good rather than someone you know so you. she she really taught them a lot and took them along with her she was amazing rather than some adult thing but for me on set what I always try to achieve is that the set is about the cast not about the crew so you go we're intruding on your world so you want in order to get good performances I suppose you just want them to feel as comfortable as they can and they did with each other they all shared a house uh, while they were filming we had some bills for damages, but um, and then um, hey, but then also beforehand we did a lot of workshops and rehearsal yeah. times. So by the time we started filming, they were a tight gang. And, okay, and yeah. then what about the contrast between them and the sort of established names that you had, like your muse Maxine, Maxine and Greta, and you know, yeah, people well, who really... I, I did. You know, really, you don't get that much time in advance, mm -hmm. but I would send them all my research about their characters, so they really knew who they were, and then they developed them as well. And someone like Monica Dolan, who plays Miss Alvaro, really takes a lot of time with her costumes ah. so that was slightly different but I did ask them so I asked all the adults to be cold to the girls right so Maisie thought Maxine hated her and she said she'd be in a car with her getting driven back and she'd go try and get Maxine to like her and Maxine would go huh because you know you try anything you can yeah. to keep this tension going that there needed to be Greta I told to be horrible to the girls not horrible to the girls but just cold and withdrawn and not friendly and I walked in the room on the first day and she was going darling you're so beautiful <laughs> she was like that and you're like oh Greta but then as soon as she got into Miss Mantel in that room they were really yeah. scared of her and the, at first, the girls, like when we had a classroom of girls and an assembly of girls, they would get the giggles because, we, you know, we like, at that time at school, you would sit up really straight and yeah. you'd be, I wanted that kind of sense of that. But they would get the giggles at first at being in quite a more strict environment. But, yeah, so no, the adult cast were amazing to work with. But I think everybody had a different acting technique. So at one point, I was in a room thinking, everyone comes to their roles differently and you just have to harness it, I think, mm -hmm. what everyone's got and how they like to do it. And then tell us about the other collaborators, the sort of behind-the-camera collaborators, particularly Agnes. Yeah, well, there was Agnes Goddard, DOP, Janie Levick, who was the production designer. Janie Levick has done Sightseers, and she's done This Is England. Um, and I really, really liked her work. And it was as soon as we met, mm -hmm. and she's northern as well, so as soon as we met, we were talking chips at school and, you know, dinner ladies and funny curtains. And then Agnes Goddard was someone who um, doesn't have an agent. She shot all Claire Denise's films. She shot Beau Travail. She's in, in her 60s now, so she's got over 30 years' experience. Doesn't have an agent, but I managed to track down her email on, um, on a cinematography site. What were you going for? Why did you Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Why did you pick Because her? I love the idea of someone lensing the film that wasn't British. So it was The world was unfamiliar to her. So she would see it for the first time. So that was the initial thing. And she's bloody brilliant, you know. But we didn't think it would happen, but we sent her the script. She said, I'll, I'll read the script. And she read the script and really liked it. And then we Skyped and she didn't have a camera set on her face. It was sort of up here. I only saw her forehead. <laughs> and it gradually, gradually creeped down. Does that give you confidence yeah, in yeah, like, cinematographer? And then, I'm, and then she went, she went um, I don't know if I can do it. And, and in fact, it was uh, Kyra, the producer, is here somewhere. But it was the first time in our lives that we'd got the money for a project, but not all. Uh, we were lying that we had a you know, director of photography at that point. So, um, and, uh, so we were like, oh, my God, we've got to start in like three weeks. And uh, Agnes is like, I thought I'd know by today if I could do it, but I don't know. And I'm like, oh my God, I felt sick. And she went, but I've decided to do it anyway. Next day, I caught the Eurostar to the day for Paris and we just spent the day with each other. Got locked out of a flat with my passport in there. I mean, it was all like <laughs> one of those things where it's a very bonding day, you know. Uh, very and did you talk day. about particular references with her? No, no, uh, no. What we did is, well, I suppose in a way we did, but over the course of writing the script, I'd kept the scrapbook. So I took the scrapbook and we went through the scrapbook. So there were images from Picnic at Hanging Rock in there, but it was, there was images of paintings and the colours and that I liked. But she, I don't know what, why, but we had this thing that we were decided we weren't going to make the film, that the film already existed and it had been made in the 60s and we were going to find it. And that was our rationale all the time. And we didn't quite know what it meant, but uh, we would go to people, we are finding... I, I started talking in a French accent, you know. <laughs> and we're like, we are finding the film and all that. But it was brilliant, you know, so... Um, there were so many people, so many components that they were brilliant collaborations, really. But Agnes was, you know, I learned so much from her. I learned so um, much you've written her. a lovely piece for the BFI website, which people should see, which has yeah. actually got a snapshot of that, um, your scrapbook. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I could give the other scans of the 400 pages if people want them. That would be but good. that's just it's one page. Yeah. That's just one page. <laughs> yes. um, and then yeah. before we take some questions, yeah. what about Tracy Thorne as a so really key collaborator? It really was. So what happened was is that I... Um, the alternative school orchestra existed and they had those instruments. And while we were filming, I had a dream that Tracy Thorne had done the music. And I'd been to a book launch of hers and went up to her afterwards and said, would you like to come for a drink? And she went, no, I'm going with some other people. <laughs> so I was a bit like a stalker. But anyway, so then I had this dream. And then um, I, I tracked her down on Twitter because she's big on Twitter. Yeah. I got her phone number and phoned her. And I've never forgotten it because where we were filming in Oxfordshire, there was a place called Salvador Deli. It was a deli called Salvador Deli. <laughs> and it was the only place you 
could get a phone signal, right? <laughs> so I phoned her up outside and she went, well, I've never done it before. And I went, well, that's great. And so she agreed to do it. So when we got back after the filming, I took her those instruments, showed her about a three minute rushes from the film, three minute yeah. rushes from the film of footage. And, and uh, she started to compose music. So as soon as me and Chris started the edit proper, Chris Wyatt, we started incorporating our music then. So she never saw the film till close to the end when we needed a bit more. And was she always absolutely right or did you have to give her direction? Never, I didn't give her any. Damn. No. That worked well. Because, because it's sort of like, it's even with directing actors, the, the less information you can give, the better. Yeah. You don't want to like muddy the waters. So I think if you cast film right, both actors and crew, it sort of works. That's and brilliant. So you're casting Tracy Fawn in a way yeah. to be part of it. Let's take some questions. I think we have got a mic, so if you could just hesitate for one second while... Oh, look, they're all going to be really shy now. Oh, no. There you go. If you just hang on one second, the mic's coming to you. Hello. Could you tell us how many drafts you did in the script and how different was the script to the finished film? Um, so I've just noticed on the front row is my script editor, Catherine Castles. She should really... <laughs> the, these are the people that don't get name checked enough. But, um, so Catherine could tell you that. But I would say, I worked with her from the beginning uh, on the outlines. I did a lot of outlines, so I didn't really, I didn't really write a first draft, did I, till the outline was really... You're not going to answer. <laughs> I won't talk to you. I didn't, really write, I didn't really write the first draft till the outline was quite in-depth and, and a lot of work done on it. So there were two drafts and a third draft that we shot from, but those were only the drafts that were delivered, I'd say. So there were things in between, but they were like, so there was draft one, uh, draft one with revisions, draft two, and then the, the one we shot. But yeah, there was a lot of work in between that. So. But then the actual film, I would say, on the DVD there will be deleted scenes. Um, <laughs> so there are scenes that don't uh, haven't made the film, but I think it follows what the script was on the whole. What was the um, biggest challenge that you had doing it? I mean, I, I was wondering particularly about the end, because yeah. uh, with a film like this, there, there must have been, a, it, you know, the idea of it being a conclusion or yeah. inconclusive or open-ended or, yeah. you know, what, what discussions did you have around well, that? Well, I'd always remembered as well reading something with Peter Weir about Peter Gang and Rock when he said he'd never make a film without an ending again, because mm. uh, at the time it caused him a lot of trouble. And, and apparently Hollywood execs threw his coffee at the screen and when it's not no damn ending, why did I watch it? And I, um, so, but anyway, I felt with this one that I wanted to keep the mystery of the, the, the hysteria, the mass psychogenic illness in a way, so people could even go away having their own ideas of what causes the girls to do that. But I did want to give a kind of hope and ending for, for Lydia and her mum, so I didn't want to kind of leave these 16-year-old girls in an esoteric world, you know, where they're just cool or something. So I, I re it was important to me that Lydia, even though she's had a difficult time, survives and that you feel she will go on. Mm -hmm. In fact, now, in my head, she lives in Brighton with her girlfriend. <laughs> Oh, I what love that end. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I did think about where people were now. And, you know, and I think it would be awful to give this young woman all these possibilities. Like, even though she's going through a difficult time, then kill her off. So I didn't want her to die like that. So it's like, Abby dies, which we're not telling anyone. And we're not mentioning the incest either, but we'll see how that goes. Yeah. But um, even though she's been through difficult times, there is some light at the end of it. And, th and th there, is, there is a connection made with her mother. Mm -hmm. That was quite important to me. OK. Uh, question down here. Hello. Um, one character I haven't heard you speak about much is uh, Kenneth Neverken. And, uh, yeah, I we love he, Kenneth. <laughs> yeah, I thought he was a really interesting one because he's sort of an ironic outsider, yeah. but then actually sometimes the irony seems to slip a bit. 
that scene where they're laughing together and then suddenly it seems as though he's being drawn in. Yeah. And I just wondered how you kind of developed him and, and yeah, the process behind so that. So I think Kenneth never can, I felt. But, so obviously the film's set in 1969 and, and I was looking at ideas around, you know, what was circulating. So it was like Alistair Crowley and the occult and Uspensky and Ley Lines. A book on in 69 had come out on Ley Lines. And also I thought most of the people, I think everybody in this film is... None of them have been to the King's Road, apart from Kenneth, in my head, who's gone once. So I thought he was like the cool guy a bit, you know, and he's, he's like, but he's still needy. So I think that slippage is that, although he comes across a little bit like, the, you know, the one that knows, and that he has his own neediness too, and his own, own sense of being an outsider. But I love Kenneth Neverken and the magic with a K. Someone came to see the film we went to a um, boarding school in New Zealand and she went, there weren't a lot of men around and any man she said around they were after, whether it was the 78-year-old gardener or the, the 40 year So I think that Kenneth has that thing where he can sort of flirt, you know, flirt. So I, I like him a lot. But yeah, so it was, I think about this mass hysteria going on and then looking closely at that relationship between brother and sister and sister and mother and sort of clinging on to those family things. Go for it. Uh, like an immediate parallel that I drew from the film was uh, the very short novel The Yellow Wallpaper by oh. Charlotte Gilman and when I think about hysteria that's immediately what I go to um, and I was wondering if you brought any of that or if that was sort of an influence at all. Right for a remake. I know well mm. someone asked me some I can't remember where I was someone mentioned Yellow Wallpaper as well and I said I was going to pretend that it had been an influence but I haven't I, I think I did read it, you know, back a long time ago when I was... When, what? We all read it. We all read it. We all read it. Yeah, we all read it. <laughs> you read it to me, I seem to remember. <laughs> um, but I don't, you know, it wasn't something that sort of featured up here, but I think you do sort of read stuff and, and it enters into your work somehow, what you do. I'm going to go and read it again and then I'll tell you, but uh, I think that the idea of trying to reveal things and trying to find yourself, is that the yellow wallpaper? She goes mad she in the mad. bedroom, doesn't yeah, she? that's right. In fact, when I, was at, I went to art college, the, the tutor there, Tina Keane, made a film about the yellow wallpaper, so I definitely remember watching that. Yeah, but, I, yeah, I can't answer it. It's a bit disappointing. Good question. Yeah, yeah. Um, a, a few lines back, yep. Hello, Carol. Um, you yeah, are... Yeah, it is. <laughs> You're so funny. <laughs> you are one of the funniest people that I know, and you make such sad and poignant <laughs> films sometimes. <laughs> and uh, you've talked about there's been screenings of The Falling where people have laughed and yeah. you don't mind. Yeah. And I just wondered about you and sort of genre and humour because, you know, Dreams of a Life is heartbreaking and this has got such, you know, sincerity and something so serious and then you're so silly. And no. I just... You know, what about you I, and I comedy and humour? I I don't know. You see, I think I do. I am drawn to the dark side of life, definitely. Uh, but and I want to explore it. But I don't want to render people sort of, you know, kind of terrorised by it. Most of our lives are made up of so many different aspects, you know. And I, th I personally, in my own, the way I approach life is it is a personal responsibility to not bring someone else down. Do you know what I mean? So, because, so make because, some comedies then. <laughs> but that, I, you know, if I made a comedy, no one would find them funny because I don't know. But maybe I will. But I think no, I just like making telling stories the right way. So with dreams of a life, it felt that Joyce had lit up a room and that she'd been a funny person. So while her end was sad, her life had not entirely been sad. So, and I think that's for most people. So I think life 
and the components and it's not without without tragedy you don't have comedy and without comedy you don't probably have tragedy because people laugh at the weirdest things so when this film screamed uh, screamed at flair uh, apparently people were rolling in the aisles you know and i think it's maybe because it's a, in, a, in a way a transgressive film it's sort of pushing you and not and um, telling you how you should feel or laugh here or laugh there so i just love the idea that people were laughing all over the place and i think also laughter is an emotion and if you can elicit an emotion from an audience you're getting mm. somewhere because you want connection, because like a film without an audience doesn't exist, you know. So um, I rock up places and people go, you made dreams of life, I thought you'd be really miserable. <laughs> you know, and, I, and then I think, oh, I don't know, but I don't, yeah, I'm not exactly, um, you know, sort of going to make a bubbly film, exactly. I don't think I ever could. Uh, but a lot of laughs could be had in my next one, or not. I'm still thinking about yellow wallpaper. Come back to you. Yeah, okay. Try and think something good. Hello. I'd like to ask you about the soundscape, which I found incredibly remarkable. It's not just Tracy Thorne's music, but it's the overlapping sound and the layers of sound. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you worked that out? Was that something you'd planned in advance? Or was that something that came out in the edit? Because it was phenomenal. Actually, the, the, the script that I did, that Catherine Castles worked on, they said it was overworked, didn't they? Over-descriptive, do you remember? Because I had all these like instructions about sound and all this stuff, and and because I I I always love sound in film, and it's it's um, obviously it's half the film, and and, um, and and if you look at something like Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Rock, or any kind of supernatural films, which this is sort of leaning to as well, the use of sound if, to create a mood is very very important. So we started to work with sound. Me and the editor Chris White started to work with sounds very early on. And in fact, there were people on set recording sounds because, uh, uh, specifically sound effects, if you like, because the school itself we filmed in had been unoccupied for 18 years and was very haunting. So they actually, rather than just go to a library of sound effects, they were going around recording with stuff like um, chalk scratching, stuff you wouldn't know exactly what it is, but I think most of the sounds in one way or another come from the world of the film but might not appear so. And then Paul Davis, um, who works on We Need to Talk About Kevin, was the, the, the uh, sound designer on it as well. So it really, w I felt very important to create that visceral idea and the breathing, you know, and getting inside someone through the sound. Yeah. Um, why did you choose to set it where you set it? And how long did it take you to look to find your tree? Because you kept coming back to the tree. The tree is a whole story. Did you first find the tree? Uh, well, I, I set it in 1969 because um, a lot of mass hysterias around that time were it, that I'd read about seemed to be connected to sexual anxiety. And I thought, and this is a film about sexual awakening. And also I felt like the 60s was sort of on an adolescent era. I did find it really funny in the research I did that man had landed on the moon, but in 1969 you couldn't get a press on sanitary towel. Women still have to wear big belts. You know, and that's sort of incongruous, two worlds colliding. So I love that idea. And thirdly, it was to the benefit that we didn't have to have social media in it and people on phones. Um, but then the tree, right, that was funny because I found the tree online because I'd been looking in Oxfordshire. Uh, I know, I'm doing a lot on it. Modern technology has served me well, hasn't it? But I, um, there's a festival called the Wilderness Festival um, in this uh, Cornbury... 
Cornbury Park and uh, people jumping off the tree into the pond and, and we went to see it. But from a kind of financial point of view, it, wa it wasn't pleasing to some people because it, not Cairo, Cairo went for it but as the producer, but it was an hour away from our location. And so one day the location guy went, I'm really sorry, they've made me search for a new tree for you, right? And he took me to this tree that was about... You know, I don't know, like this distance to the back from water um, on its own in a field. And it was really boring. Um, the production designer, the Anya, says that we all stood around this tree and went, huh? And then that was the end of that conversation. So the tree, I remember just visiting the tree for the first time. It's a magical place. It's a magical tree. It's a very old English oak. In fact, I hadn't really seen it on, on, online. I'd seen sort of pictures of the general vicinity. But when we got there, the, um, they said the gamekeeper was going to come up. Is it? Yeah, the gamekeeper. Yeah, was going to come and meet us. And I thought it would be some 80-year-old guy on a tractor, and it was this sort of, you know, hunk of a 20-year-old. <laughs> and he went, I know what you're looking for, and drove us to that tree and one of those things. And it was brilliant. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know... Um, but so, yeah, so that was the tree. And it was like, it, the tree to me is a, a proper person. And we didn't scratch into it. That's all a, a tree prosthetic. We didn't hurt the tree. <laughs> no, I no learned about tree prosthetics as well. A <laughs> couple of quickies. Um, I wonder how you landed on the title, The Falling. Uh, I know there's a, an album by Carmel of the same title, whether there's any connection with that. What, from uh, Manchester? The, the Carmel? Yeah. Oh, Carmel. Do you remember Carmel? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a brilliant album. You should, you should check it out. Yeah. Um, but also, I saw uh, Luke Rogue uh, credited, and I wonder if there's any relation to Nick Rogue of Walkabout fame. Well, Luke Rogue is in Walkabout. He is um, Nick's son, and he is the little boy in Walkabout. He plays the boy in it. So that is him, yeah. And in fact, um, Luke invited his dad to see the film, and I said, does your dad normally say anything about the films you've been involved in? He said no, but I got a letter, well, an email from Nick Rogue, which I, I printed out and is framed on, well, on my mantelpiece. Because <laughs> he said, congratulations on a very original film, Nicholas. <laughs> um, but the Carmel thing, I, I didn't know. You know, I remember Carmel because there weren't many. We're, yeah, we're yeah. from Stockport. We're, we're, we're actually from the same. We didn't go to the same school, but um, <laughs> she went to that nice grammar school. But um, <laughs> but Carmel was like very few women came out of the music business. But I hadn't remembered the. But the falling, it was for me like I came on it quite soon, and it represented so many things like falling in love, fall from grace. You know, I knew they were falling from the tree, and then the fainting. So it it felt like. I think a film title, you just want people to under... You know, like Dreams of a Life was, you know, Dreaming of Joyce's Life, My Dreams of Life, The Audience Dreams of a Life. And I think The Falling, for me, even though it's not the most original title in the world in some ways, because there's The Fall, and uh, Emma, our social media person, says on her Google alerts, it keeps coming up, falling oil prices. So <laughs> I, think she, I think she wished I'd called it something else. But on the other hand, it's like, it, 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 it works me, because it's, it's almost biblical as well, The Falling. So it's sort of, you know, quite a big thing, I think. But I'm going to go back and listen to Carmel, actually. Yeah, me like, too. Yeah. God, I forgot all about yeah. um, her. Stick with the falling for one second. Oh, yes. The actual falling, oh, the yes, fainting, yes. the choreography. Tell us about yeah. that. So there were... Well, there was the falling from the tree that we had a um, stunt person for. Okay. That was the only thing I storyboarded in the film because it's like health and safety of how you're going to do it all. 
but um, the actual fainting and falling, we had a, a movement coach, uh, Sue Lefton, mm -hmm. who actually would have been the age uh, the girls would be now. So she, she was brilliant because she'd say, you wouldn't say that, you wouldn't do that. And this is, so she'd give them posture things as well of how they did that. But um, I didn't want them falling on mats because I wanted to film the floor. So she taught them how to fall straight onto a floor. So they started slowly. We did a few workshops. Maisie said they had lessons in the house every Thursday, but I think she's exaggerating now, but maybe they did. But um, they started slowly and you would learn to fall on soft parts of your body and then get faster and faster. Uh -huh. I can't say they, they did have bruises though, but they were cool about it. But they did have a few bruises, but they didn't hurt themselves in any way. And I think it's going to be a gift for life because <laughs> they can cleverly. be in a queue and just have a go <laughs> and like get to the front of a queue. So I think it was worth it. But, but Sue left and tried to get them to find their own way of falling, yeah. you know, so it was unique to them. Okay, well, yeah. beautifully done and yeah. fantastic to give them some extra skills in life. Yeah, I know. Okay, too. Carol, thank you so yeah, much. Thank Congratulations you, so much thank on you. such a wonderful film. Thank you. Carol Moore. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Barbican Screen Talk with Carol Morley. If you'd like to hear more and support film at the Barbican, please subscribe to this podcast via iTunes or Acast or visit barbican.org.uk slash screentalksarchive. And we'd love to know what you think. Talk to us on social media at Barbican Centre. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.